Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 37, Sandman Mystery Theater, Part 3. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris King, and today I'm excited to bring to you the final part of our three-part discussion of Sandman Mystery Theater, my favorite mainstream comic. Uh, as with the previous two installments of this, I'm joined by special guest Lamb Bradley. In the first two episodes, we covered issues 1 through 32. Today, we'll be covering issues 33 to 70 and going over the rest of the series. Uh, I just wanted to mention that there was a brief um, audio issue just with the first couple minutes of the recording, so I've re-recorded that uh, myself um, just to set up the conversation that I have with Slam. So you'll hear me at the beginning, and then Slam will join in, uh, and we'll take it from there. So, without further ado, here it is, Sandman Mystery Theater, Part 3. I'm actually going to just set things up for you with this first arc, numbers 33 to 36, The Python. And this is a story where, plot-wise, there's not really, it's not really that interesting, but there's a lot of really interesting thematic elements. Um, As we discussed in the previous episodes, uh, the main thematic thing that goes throughout the entire series is how trauma, um, both uh, physical and mental trauma, is passed down through the generations from parents to children and how that affects the children and and warps their development. And we see that really blatantly here because in this course of this murder mystery where there's someone killing a bunch of people, we discover that that, uh, basically all of the victims and um, the killer all have some sort of uh, parent-child relationship that's out of balance, um, and a lot of them have violent relationships. So, just as an example, like uh, the second victim is a, is a mother. The son is shown slapping around. He's modeling behavior specifically after his father, who is abusive. Uh, we see um, that the killer began by killing his own mother uh, as a result of their. Um, relationship and etc etc we see a lot of these different um, dynamics with how violence uh, and trauma is is passed from parents to children again it goes through almost every arc of the whole series it's it's the it's one of the two or three central arcs and so it's it's really on um, display in this one again the plot's not that interesting um, the other thing is, as we usually do, we see a lot of mirrors for Diane in particular, where we see other characters sort of mirroring or having um, situations in their lives that mirror what Diane's going through, and we can see uh, sort of outsized uh, results, and she can sort of contrast what she's thinking with what she's seeing happening to other people in similar situations. Uh, in this case... Um, there's another character she talks to and they talk about wedding fantasies and, and marriage and stuff. And of course, Diane is at this point where she's really unsure um, 
how you know exactly where they want to go with west because west is someone who does not believe in marriage and so it's again we get we get a lot of really rich thematic stuff but plot wise you know it's it's not it's not quite as great i don't have a huge amount of notes on this particular arc i i didn't care for the arc generally um war and police um did the art on on this it didn't work for me the art on this was i, I thought was among the worst um in the series um i didn't find the plot to be particularly interesting we had uh you mentioned earlier um rex presaged it with the uh uh when he mentioned talked about the uh health consciousness thing yeah um i felt like diane was out of character uh a fair bit in this arc and and also in uh sandman midnight theater which i think would be coming up yeah i was going to talk about that when we get to sandman midnight theater because i i didn't notice it so much in this arc but i definitely think she's out of character in the next story which we'll get to yeah um there was one one thing i actually noted um the german aggression in europe uh, really looms over this particular arc, um, and it starts, I think, really becoming a, a palpable part of, of the storyline that will continue through the end. Uh, so that that I noticed uh, that uh, was was clearly there, and, and is something that will will move forward. Um, I had some issue. The other the other area where I had some issues is um, Larry Belmont um in this uh story acted out of character not necessarily for larry but for who he is um uh, he's an elected uh district attorney uh this is a guy with a significant amount of power and uh burke just treats him like a turd um at a couple of points in this arc and it, there's no way that an elected official uh, with that amount of power would let a, a police lieutenant, even somebody like Burke, treat him that way. Um, and and he he also there's a the, a point where he uh, has to work late because of this new murder, uh, a murder that there's no suspects, there's really been no investigation of. Uh, it just is not something that an elected DA would ever do so yeah i mean i had some similar notes um it's not my favorite arc um again i thought the, the most interesting parts of it were were just the thematic elements of having all the the all of the the both the killer and all the victims have some sort of relationship with the child parent trauma and violence being passed down from one generation to the next those kind of mirrors um I, um, sorry, I just lost, oh yeah. So I, uh, I agree with Diane being a little out of character and, and I think it was uh, because it was plot driven. Um, so- I, I agree. And I think that part of the, the, the reason it was plot driven was in order to get her to England. Yeah, so that this, in between this arc and the next arc, 
we get this it's sandman midnight theater and what happens at the end of this storyline in issue 36 the python diane leaves goes to england to find herself and then in this story she does a lot of soul searching and at the end she decides to get back together with Wes. the problem i had with this and i think why she was act felt out of character in the python to get her to this issue is the soul searching she's doing in here she just did in the series so it felt very repetitive now um this is nominally a crossover it's called sandman midnight theater and it's nominally a crossover with with sandman morpheus and it's co-written by neil gaiman and um it you know uh it felt like they wanted to do that to to tie the books together and uh i just didn't think it was necessary or very successful i I agree um this is this may be is probably my least favorite thing that Gaiman's written, um, prose or or uh, comics. Um, I've not read all of his comics work. I've read all of his prose work except for maybe a couple of a uh, couple of short stories that may have slipped through. Um, I have not read the Eternals because that's just a a book that a franchise that doesn't interest me at all. Um, but this 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 just didn't it it seemed like we had diane out of character in order to get her to england so that uh that wes could follow her and he could meet morpheus um but nothing really necessarily comes of it uh and it's not terribly interesting yeah so i felt kind of like you know, the annual wasn't intrusive. It just didn't serve a purpose. This was intrusive and also didn't serve a purpose. The series is so good that these sort of extra things just interfere with how good the series is. It, it does better without them. It doesn't, not only does it not need them, it doesn't want them either. Interestingly, I've, I've read a ton of uh, interviews with with Neil Gaiman, and I don't know that I remember him ever mentioning this book, um, which probably says something about it. The there's a couple of things I wanted to mention about Sam and Midnight Theater is um, again we have more more mirrors for Diane, who's a character that she meets up with, who's supposedly deliriously happy in her marriage. It turns out that a she she never really gets to spend time with her husband because he's too busy doing other things. But also their relationship, their seemingly perfect relationship is destroyed because of secrets that they've been keeping. So that's like a clear parallel with her and Wes. Uh, this also introduces, I think it's the introduction, it's my introduction to the character of Canon. Yes, movie. it is. Um, this guy who's, I'm not even sure how to describe him. He's a priest who's also like a private detective or something I like it's not really quite right but he's an adventurous he's a, priest with a with a unique morality yes um anglican reverend vicar i'm not sure what um i'm not that familiar with the anglican church but uh uh the canon uh he has this little uh calling card that he leaves that has a canon on it which is obviously a pun on canon the ecclesiastical canon um 
uh, he becomes somewhat more important later on. In some ways, I feel like he's a, a little bit of a mirror of Wes. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have the money, but he he's doing. He he's uh, at one point. Diane says something about uh, it's nice dealing with real straightforward people with no secret ID, and and she's referring to this reverend. Well, obviously, he's not in fact that, uh, nor is her friend Annabelle. Um, everybody has secrets, and it, I don't know. It just felt like we were being hit over the head with this. Yeah, I, mean, I thought, I don't mind the character Cannon when he comes back later, he's he's fine. Um, it almost felt like, a, like a, if it was a TV show, it was like a backdoor pilot. Where they're like, <laughs> yes. do, do you guys like this Cannon character? Because if you really like him, we could bring him back. Right in and we'll bring him back. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so let's skip to the next one because this is sort of more interesting. It's the mist. This is 37. This is, yeah, this is a, a, an arc that I think reverberates. Uh, 37, 38. So, it uh, reverberates both through the, uh, I think less through the uh, Sandman Mystery Theater and more through the greater DC universe itself. Yeah, I mean, I thought this arc was was uh, was fine. Um, it, it they they did a unique type of crossover here. So what happens is we get introduced to Ted Knight, we get, and there's this competition to uh, build devices. Like the War Department is having inventors come in with their inventions, and one of the competing inventors is the Mist, who's uh, this guy from Canada and we basically see in this story how he becomes the mist and he's sort of defeated by uh Sandman and Sandman ends up with one of the mists uh medal that he had won in World War One. That's the end of this story. Um mm -hmm. over in the pages of Starman we get in the present day, which is the nineties, a a force you arc where the mist in the present day, who's now a really old daughter and old man, um, basically they want to get his medal back, his children. What's interesting is that series is very similar thematically to Sam and Mystery Theater. It's all about the relationship between uh, parents and children and the legacies they pass down. And it's also a lot about the beginnings of the DC universe. So the two series are very complementary. And so basically the, the, the Mist's children, they want to get the metal back. And so Starman's trying to get this metal and he tracks down Wes and Diane. And um, we learn that, that Diane has become this, this sort of famous literary figure. Uh, and um, it's, it's a really cool story. It, was, it is very interesting as a crossover because it's not a, really a direct crossover. They take place several decades apart and the metal is just sort of the this MacGuffin that ties the two stories together. Um, I did like, I, I thought that overall the storyline was fine. It, it, it wasn't spectacular. Um, this was, I think, uh, we, we've moved even further into the most overtly comic booky villain. Um, obviously, yeah. the Mist is a, a long term, but I mean, we've got the mad scientist thing. He's, he's doing 
all kinds of weird stuff so he can get money for to create perfect his creation. The one thing I did like about this um, is that uh, Wagner and Siegel pull a lot of a, a lot of headline type stuff into this uh, into this uh, arc, um, which for a history buff like me is is a, a very cool thing. Um, it talked they, there was union corruption. There's there's mobsters doing their thing. It talked about the effects of. Uh, of, of a Supreme Court case, National Labor Relations Board versus Fun Steel, um, just all kinds of history nerd stuff in this that uh, that's cool. But uh, as far as the storyline itself goes, um, other than the connections to the DCU, it was it was okay. There there was some good development with Diane. Again, you'll you'll notice that whenever we're talking about the character development, it's it's always about Diane. Uh, there, there is some with Wes later, but it's really the, the arc is all about Diane. And here she gets a, uh, a job with her father. So her father, she finally starts working officially with her father. She starts unofficially working with Wes as well. So now she's helping him with some of the cases and she's starting to find purpose and direction because she's now doing things and taking action instead of just sort of being being and being reactive to what other what men are, are doing i did think um I, I made one note um i was i i was reading i don't i don't think i was reading starman at the time i i later uh picked up all of the starman trade paperbacks and read them after the fact um but Ted Knight was different here uh, than he was in Starman. Uh, obviously, uh, multiple decades went by, so people change, but uh, he was not a terribly likable character in this arc. He was kind of a horn dog. He was uh, spent a lot of time hitting on Diane. He was uh, was not a terribly not 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 a character that I would want to spend a lot of time with. No. Um... Okay, next arc uh, is a is a big arc. It's an important arc. It's the Phantom of the Fair. Um, I really like the the design, the cover design on these issues. Um, they they have a like a retro, um, a real retro feel to them with the blurbs and the text and just the like the circle with the big numbers. And uh, I really like the cover design. Um, a lot of stuff going on in this storyline. Uh, we get, there's a lot of foreshadowing for future arcs. Um, there's also, we get some more DC Universe building here. The Crimson Avenger shows up, but also Jim Corrigan shows up. And in an appearance that puzzled me because I felt like it was referring to a specific story, like there was some things going on with him that I felt like were referencing some kind of specter story that I've never read and they don't tell you what it is and I couldn't figure it out. I, I didn't get anything out of that. And I, if it was reference to a golden age or, or bronze age specter story, then I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't know what's it, going on. Uh, I'm a big fan of John Ostrander and, and Tom Mandrake's 1990s specter uh, comic, but I don't recall anything in there that would have tied into this. 
there's also um, a tie-in with Sandman. Now, this was a little bit lost on me because I haven't read Sandman, but <laughs> there was a reference, in, I think, in one of the dream sequences to the Corinthian. To the Corinthian. The Corinthian is uh, a character from Sandman who, when Sandman was captured by Burgess and, and put in his bubble, which obviously we saw uh, in Sandman Midnight Theater, um, the dreaming, his realm um, started coming apart and ultimately certain dreams uh, escaped into reality. And one of those was the Corinthian. Um, the Corinthian um, is a dream that uh, of the evil that men do. Um, he's got um, teeth in his eyeballs rather than or in his eye sockets rather than having eyes and he is essentially what uh, drives men to become uh, serial killers um, so that's all taken he, he is recaptured by um, Sandman after he frees himself and, and regains his powers uh, in one of the, the early arcs uh, in, in the Sandman comic. So the, the, I think what what Wagner and, and Siegel are saying here with, with the appearance of, of the Corinthian is this is the point at which the Corinthian escapes from the dreaming into reality. And that's why we're seeing all of these uh, serial killers appearing and, and all of this uh, really nasty murder stuff happening. It's interesting that they're bringing in so much of the DCU stuff the whole storyline, this whole arc, which I, which I think is is a pretty pretty good one, um, is like uh, we mentioned earlier that they're they're bringing in little elements from the original Golden Age books that are inspiring things. This is called the Phantom of the Fair. The storyline takes place there's someone that's committing murders at the New York's World Fair. Sandman first appeared in the New York's World Fair. Uh, issue. So it was before his appearance in Adventure Comics 40, he appeared in a comic that was sold at the New York's World Fair. And so this whole this whole story is is an homage to his first appearance. Um, there was also uh, Roy Thomas did a uh, series called Secret Origins um, in the 80s when he was doing uh, All Star Squadron. And one of the early stories in that was Sandman. He was doing the uh, the characters uh, as they appeared, uh, and the the he had the origin of Sandman was tied in with the New York World's Fair, and the Phantom of the Fair was was there. Obviously, a very different Phantom of the Fair from Roy Thomas um, than what we had here. Yeah, so I don't <laughs> think Roy Thomas would have gone anywhere near this, or could have. Um, <laughs> Basically, in this case, the Phantom of the Fair is a, a, a killer who there's a there's a lot of things going on here. But again, there's thematically the trauma passed down from parent to child. We have a character who basically is like a, a gay character who was abused for being gay by by his mother or his parents and has developed these schizophrenia, this serious mental illnesses, and he's tracking down, hunting gay people, gay men, and then sexually abusing them and then murdering them. 
and one of the victims is Wes's friend Robert Lee. Um, I think I got his name right there. Uh, who we've sure, yeah. seen in previous issues, and th- there were several. Like it was that was that turned out to be really interesting too because we see Wes um, very upset by this, but also uh there's some moments where he has to sort of confront his own prejudices um because he just hadn't occurred to him that any of his friends could be gay uh you know and this is 1939 so uh it was it was there's a lot in in this storyline yeah there was um i think if i remember right this was also the storyline we got uh i don't know if it was a flat probably not a flashback but Wes is thinking back to his time in the uh, fraternity and he and Robert being tied together naked or something. Um, and and uh, overall, there are things to like. I guess my problem with, uh, with this storyline, obviously a lot happening and, and a lot to like, but even at this point in time, the the gay character killing other gay characters because of of things that have happened to them is kind of low hanging fruit as far as a uh, it's true yeah. storyline goes. It's I agree. Um, there may have been ways to get to the good parts that came from that with with Wes examining himself. It's uh, you know and with without resorting to that aspect of the plot um i mean in general i think most of these cases are fine they're constructed fine i as i mentioned at the beginning i actually don't like crime stories or like i i can't watch any kind of like uh um serial like uh serialized you know like csi like i can't watch any of those so for me i would be fine without a lot of this stuff but the the good parts of the story are are so good that I don't mind it um, as much, but I, I agree that probably didn't need to, that there are a couple of places where it gets a little cliche, even for the nineties in terms of how they do, they have some of these, some of these things. Uh, shall we move on to the next arc? Yeah. Okay. So uh, here's the Blackhawk arc. I love the design because they look like these movie posters. Um, yeah. uh, Blackhawk 269 was my first comic book I ever bought so I'm, I have a lot of um, nostalgia for Blackhawk as a character I will say this this is again we're having several several stories in a row where we're introducing new t- characters yeah that seems to be the theme at this point yeah part of me wonders how much of that might have been editorially suggested um, in terms of the, the, the sales on this book were never great and I wonder if they thought, well, let's let's uh, let's sex this up a little bit, and we'll, let's let's add in some of these golden age characters. Uh, I'm not sure how many you know fans around the world were like over the moon because there was a Crimson Avenger cameo in a, in a comic. Like, I'm not sure how how much that would work as a sales. I would, I would be one, but <laughs> I know, but. Um, <laughs> I like this story. I, I think it's a fun story. It, it doesn't have quite the same resonance as some of the other ones. I feel like the more we bring in some of these characters, the more the plot becomes paramount over the character development. Um, 
and uh, I, you know, the character development is more important to me. One thing that's happening here explicitly with Blackhawk is he's he's a, a pilot from Poland who's come to America to try and get support for the freedom fighters in Poland fighting against German um, occupation. And so the stuff with Europe is starting to not just be simmering in the background, but it's starting to be the main part of the so a lot of these plots now. Yeah. It um there were a couple of things happening here. Obviously the the European and the the war becomes a real real problem. Uh this black the art on this I, I thought was not not good at all. Um Diane looked a little bit like the brute uh on more than a few occasions. Um I really just just I, the art was a real problem for me. Um, this is a Black Hawk, obviously, who hearkens uh, to the reimagining of Black Hawk by Howard Chaikin uh, in the 80s, um, which is fine. Um, uh, the big thing here for me, there were a couple of, of pretty important turns here. Um, Lieutenant Burke's girlfriend, whatever she, lady friend, uh, was killed, um, and he blames Black Hawk for that. And uh, we see just exactly how single-minded and and unreasonable that Burke can be if he's decided that he something is the way it's going to be. Uh, and then we actually see uh, Diane acting as Sandy. Um, yeah, and which I think is a is a an interesting turn and a, and a very, uh, you know, both both for historical purposes, interesting, but uh, she's becoming much more active, um, helping uh, Wes in his quest to find justice. I thought it was a great twist on the, you know, Sandy as the Sandman's sidekick, because it's a character that doesn't make any sense to have some boy sidekick, which is it's just dumb. So I, I thought like this was I, I really liked I really liked Diane and Sandy. Uh, another important thing with Diane in this arc, um, again, more agency is this is where she starts writing her novel. And that's going to bring us into the next the next arc, which is a key sort of pivotal arc here. Again, I love the cover design of this arc because this yeah. is where they make it look like DC Comics from the 40s, because this is the arc that deals with the pulp and comic publishing industries in the 40s. So I'll just show off all well, of this. I think one of the things that we hadn't mentioned is at some point and earlier, and I don't remember when, um, uh, there had been, there had started to be a pulp published with Adventures of the Sandman, um, and that uh, obviously Klein read that pulp, and uh, so that that ties into into this, and that's uh, yeah. And I, I love when they bring in those elements. You know, it's very meta. You know, it's a comic. It's a pulp within a comic that's about pulp. It's about comics that are about pulps. <laughs> so uh, I love that sort of thing. We get the return of the uh, these brothers who are trying to do this comic publishing initiative. We saw back in issue 32, 
Um, there's a comic book within the comic. So in, in issue 50, I think it is, we see the comic about the Sandman, which is done in this golden age style, which is... By, by Joe Kirby and Jack Simon. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just, it's great. It's great meta commentary. Um, it makes, it fits in perfectly because these are taking place, you know, in 39, when like, you know, right when the golden age of comics is really starting. So um, I really like that. We also get some more continuity stuff where we get the return of the face again yeah uh so the only like recurring villain in the series which recurs there's also an extended dream sequence with morpheus in it and some of the dialogue there is from sandman midnight theater so uh it's really pulling a lot of those things together um we also get some historical commentary um with regard to the, the Derrigo and Derrigo publishing uh, being a money laundering front for, for the mob, because there's obviously always been, um, I don't know if it's been ever fully confirmed, the speculation that uh, DC Comics, uh, at least at one point, uh, was laundering money for the mob. Uh, Victor Fox pretty much, pretty clearly, I think, was uh, was at least mobbed up at times so the the pulp industry and and later the comic book industry uh any any less legitimate uh publishing generally had mob ties at the time yeah so that's all and we also get some really important stuff with diane so diane is trying to sell her novels they people she's not being accepted because she's a woman she's being turned away she gets caught in this bomb blast and injured um she also finds out in this storyline i think this is where she finds out that she's pregnant and so she's seeing a couple different pathways her life could take uh her as a mother her as as a writer she doesn't necessarily see them as compatible um, and this is going to be the centerpiece of the next, um, well, the rest of the run really uh, is her figuring out what this means, Wes reacting to her, and uh, just a, a it, it's sort of a culmination of the whole theme of the, because so many of these stories are specifically about parents and children and, and, um, passing on trauma and violence beginning violence within families it's when you think about it it's kind of inevitable where there has to be a story where they where she gets pregnant and they have to figure it out with within their own relationship um and the fact that the war in europe is crouched getting more and more into the story and looming over everything becomes really important to how they decide to develop it because uh, it's not just the violence taking place directly with the people around them. It's the, 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 the existential threat of just everything in the world that she has to deal with. This was, as I recall, the first time that we learned that Wes had a brother. Uh, I, I don't remember that having come up earlier in the, in the story or in, in the comic. And, uh, 
we haven't ever found out a lot about at this point Wes's family is we know his father's dad we know his mother's dad we know he spent time uh in in Asia because his father didn't have time to deal with him um so again that gets back into the the family and uh whether or not uh you know I, our our children going to keep us from doing what we what we want to do and what we feel we need to do with our lives. So we're going to get right into the ramifications of the pregnancy in the next arc, which is the crone. This is about a radio drama. So um, Now I've got a few notes about this. There's good and bad, most mostly good, but some bad, and some bad, unfortunately, in some of the same ways we've been talking about already. But so the the crone, basically, uh, Wes and Diane have opposite reactions to her being pregnant. Wes is really excited; he wants to be a father. He thinks it's great, and she's kind of like, "That's easy for you to say. You don't have to do anything." Um, and she feels like her body's being taken over, like she's just a vessel for some other being to sort of use her and to come into the world. And she she blames him a lot. She's really angry with him that she's pregnant. We saw a little bit of that um, in the last arc. They, they, Diane was very clearly um, early in the arc. She was very clearly uh, had morning sickness, was not feeling well. So I, I don't think. I felt like that didn't come out of the blue. Uh, this was obviously not a fun pregnancy, at least the early parts of it. Um, we see more parallels for Diane here in this story. There's a pregnant, in this radio drama, one of the actresses is pregnant, she has an abortion, it goes really badly. And it's, it's obviously a mirror for Diane's worries. It's one, one thing that could happen to her based on what choices that she makes. Uh, there's also, um, there's there's a relationship between a son and a mother and the mother is like a militant feminist and she sees this other viewpoint, not just on motherhood, but um, she has conversations with this woman about you know her relationship with Wes. And so that's another interesting sort of different take on things in a different view to help inform Diane. Um, we get another story uh, here where the, again, the, the perpetrator turns out is, has this fraught family relationship. Uh, problematic element. Um, if I'm not, I don't have this in my notes, but unless I'm misremembering the killer dresses up as a woman to pull off. Yeah, some he scrums. dresses up in drag to uh, yeah. to pull off his murders. The 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 plot here was was a little bit different in that uh, this was set up as kind of a classical whodunit. Um, you've got uh, this cast of characters who are involved together, and somebody's killing the the cast of the characters and you've got all these different motives and all these different people who have uh, reason and, and ability to do this. So it was, to me, it 
was interesting that they went to a different uh, a different type of of mystery, uh, something we hadn't seen before. Uh, I don't think that the the individual was the the killer in this case was was an actual transsexual. I think it was uh, an opportunistic thing. So I, I didn't have as big a problem with that as as I might otherwise have had. Um, one of the things that struck me, struck me uh, here and, and going forward is that uh, uh, obviously abortion is a very controversial issue still. Um, it was handled very maturely um, and I think uh, very reasonably uh, in with both the good and the bad in in this in, in this book, which was was important to me. Yeah. So Diane ultimately ends up having an abortion. We get some of the ramifications of that in the next storyline, the canon. Where we have wait for it, the return of the canon. The canon. We we did get to see Doctor McKnighter again, um, in the crone. Oh yeah, um, I forgot to mention. We did get to see. Uh, I I think that was an arc where where Lieutenant Burke uh, had a little bit of uh, growth because he he worked with uh, with Wes uh, up until Wes gasses him again. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, like, I, I feel Burke's frustration at certain Oh, points. absolutely, absolutely. Every time he tries to help the guy, he gets gassed. So um, just to look at these covers, this is the design. This has to do with the, uh, with um, these 1933 Golden Eagle coins, uh, which I'm not a coin collector, but I have heard of them before. There's, there's only a few of them. It doesn't really matter. This is, to me, this is the last of the Wagner issues that he co-plotted. Yeah. This is probably the most plot-driven and least sort of thematically rich arc in the whole series. It's, yeah. it's fine for what it is, but what it but it's not as it does not have the depth of the, the of the rest of the arcs in the run. And yeah, there's not a lot happening here that's um, super interesting to me, other than um, obviously it is Matt Wagner's last uh, story arc. It is they they said he left to work on Mage Two. Um, I don't know whether he actually produced Mage Two or not because I'm not a Mage fan. I've not read that book. Um, uh, Michael Lark was the penciler on this, uh, and Richard Case was inked it. I'm a big fan of Michael Lark. I think his work is absolutely fab fabulous. Um, he has a very modern, modern golden age look that, uh, that I think worked really well here. Um, still, obviously, Guy Davis is the gold standard for the book, but I thought Lark of the non-Guy Davis uh, artists was probably the best that we had. There, there is a little bit of, the main interest here on a character level is that it's um, Wes and Diane sort of dealing with the ramifications of her decision to have the abortion. Yeah. Wes is, is upset. Uh, we see he in his uh, narration journals, like, he ruminates a lot about, um, you know, losing 
this child and then you know losing his own father and stuff and diane is sort of there's a distance in their relationship that they're struggling with and canon as the priest sort of comes in and helps them sort of come back together i think this is where we probably see as much we start to see as much of uh of uh wes as we're going to see um he, he doesn't deal with the abortion well and obviously i think that comes back to his issues with his father he was i i think hoping to be able to uh um be the father that his father wasn't um so we actually do get some some character growth and some insight into west but overall it's it's not one of the more important arcs so we're getting towards the end and I, I i have a lot of notes about this next arc because this is very unusual I mean, it's the first of the stephen t siegel solo stories it has a different structure than the whole rest of the series because each of the four issues in this arc tells a story of basically the same day with a different uh, from a different point of view of a different character. So instead of one story from you know Diane's point of view or Wes's point of view, it's several interlocking stories from each of the supporting characters' point of views. The big question that I have here is it doesn't really matter, I suppose, but um, part of me thinks that Siegel was doing this, like now that he's taking over the book as a, sort of a new direction, sort of like, okay, we can break out of the structure we've had before. We can do different things with the series. I'm going to expand what we can do. And here's a look at how we can do it by bringing these other characters in. However, this is starts with issue 61. The series ends with issue 70. Part of me wonders if it's the reverse is happening where the writing's on the wall that the series is coming to a close and so he wants to give the spotlight to the supporting characters to give them a, like a closure before he closes things off for the main characters because that's basically what happens particularly with issue 64 which is the burke issue yeah. I, I, that's that's what makes sense to me i think at this point um the the main writer the creator is leaving um uh, 60 you I mean, you end up having 10 issues left but at that point you have to know that sales are not uh fabulous uh and i know that the cutoff point i'm not entirely sure at this point but later on the um cancellation point for vertigo books was significantly lower than what it was for for DCU books, um, a lot lower. But I think at this point, you have, you probably have to know with with the main main driving force behind the book leaving and with probably plummeting sales that the writing's on the wall. This isn't going to happen uh, for much longer. So let's let's give these characters their day in the sun. And and frankly, I don't have a huge amount of notes on on this, but I like these issues a lot. I have a, I have a few notes. I'll just do them individually. So here's this is called the city. Here's part one, and uh, one the, my only note here really, other than and again, is dealing with father son relationships. That um, Sandman's being covered in the press, and he we have a thing with Wes uh, that he's starting to feel sort of uncomfortable um 
working from the shadows. He doesn't feel like he's being true to himself. He wants to be more out in the open and he's starting to almost slip a little bit. Um, he's making mistakes uh, and where he's becoming more public, more of a public figure. It's also going to lead into the final arc, which I want to save to talk about because it's my favorite. is so awesome. But in, in terms of superheroes, uh, where costume vigilantes working out in the open as opposed to a shadowy figure of myth. It's, uh, yeah, I think what you're, you're, you see kind of the, the transition here from the old school pulp oriented uh, heroes to, to the more golden age uh, oriented hero. Um, later golden age here. I mean, obviously this is earlier than, than what you would see that, but eventually um, all of those early heroes become homogenized, um, less edgy, um, more childlike. Uh, and, and I wonder if they were going for uh, a beginning of that look. So here's 62, this is the Diane spotlight issue. I don't have this in my notes, so I could be getting this wrong, but I think this is the issue where she tracks down this famous author. And yes. there's this guy who's like a gibbering moron who is <laughs> posing as the author, but it's because the author wants to remain secret. And so the author has basically hired this person to act as their, their front. Um, this is a story where she actually puts on the Sandman costume. Um, the old, the old costume, the original, the gas, yeah. the old, old, longer gas mask and gun. Yeah, and that's a, a bit of a nod to a story from the Golden Age where she, yeah. where she took on the Sandman identity. Sixty-three is another father-daughter story. This is uh, Humphrey's spotlight, where his daughter Etta, who's been in the series for a while, again as a counterpoint, like another mirror for Diane's own relationship. With her father, um, Etta gets in some some trouble here, and Humphreys is trying to get her out of trouble. And um, uh, I really like these stories again. And then probably my favorite is the Burke. The Burke the Burke, story. The Burke story is is excellent. Um, and it 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 does more than in he he gets fleshed out as a character more in that issue than he had the entire series up to then. Yeah, and he gets his happy ending, although I think that might, I don't remember for sure if that might happen later, but he ends up getting married at the end of the series. And yeah, he ends up, this is, this is the issue when he, when he finally breaks down and agrees to meet the, uh, his partner's uh, sister-in-law or somebody, something some like that, sort yeah. of, some, some sort of relation and, and they hit it off. Yeah, and that's uh, I, I really like the arc. I really like the characters. Uh, okay, next, next to the penultimate, let's say, arc the goblin. Again, the goblin. we have another um monster baby, uh, like a like a like a deformed child. And this is this is I I, I thought this was really good because it basically is the culmination of uh. Wes and Diane dealing with the fallout from the abortion 
there's a part where Wes breaks down. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff here. I have a whole page of notes on this. Um, but again, we have the whole child parent thing. Um, we have, there's a, this orphanage and this, this female, this woman who's an orphanage keeper and she's sort of become bitter, but she's, it turns out what she's really bitter about is that all these children have been abandoned. It really gets to the heart of kind of why Diane decided to have the abortion. There's all these abandoned children that uh, have no parents and society is just has abandoned them. And as a result, sort of the evils of society are falling on these kids and shaping them into things like the goblin, things that they shouldn't be. And so it sort of uh, reinforces in some ways for her um, several things, but that she feels like, you know, she did the right thing for her, but also like her commitment to helping children in need. It's been a, an, a thing that's started a while ago. We talked about it earlier, but it really culminates here where she realizes this is like something she really wants to do is help other children um i think there was uh there there was a lot here happening um the chain there the, you had the two orphanages the good orphanage and the bad orphanage and uh the difference that uh money and, and societal placement uh will have uh and and simply you know if you've got pretty babies they can go to the good orphanage and they they may get adopted but the babies that are not pretty or come from from bad circumstances are are going to just be cast off um and left uh this was this actually i think that this uh storyline is interesting and kind of comes back to your theory um because uh, wes was was not um was not did not do well with the abortion and was not at this point particularly supportive of Diane. And I know Diane wanted, desperately wanted Wes to talk to Larry about what had happened and how their relationship would be. And Wes kept putting it off and, and, and uh, refusing to, to do that. And during this, uh, storyline Wes uh takes a blow to the head and and basically is subsumed by the sandman character and isn't awakened until he is uh touched by morpheus and I, I, going back to your your overarching theory about this being written by diane um this is an arc where Wes was being a jerk and uh, he comes off very badly and he ends up, you know, getting getting pummeled because of it. Yeah, there's there's a lot here. I think this is the arc also where uh, Diane's father has a heart attack. Larry finds out about the abortion, um, not because Wes told him, uh, which is what Diane wanted. Uh, I don't remember exactly why he found finds out. He finds out through some circumstance. Um, I think he finds out that she had been at this hospital that basically is known to be nothing but an abortion hospital, a good one, but a, and uh, yeah, it causes him to have a heart attack. 
yeah there's there's a lot there again with the the, the parents the relationships um I thought it was an excellent arc in a lot of ways. It, it ties up a lot of things thematically, um, which is the perfect way to segue into the final arc, which I can't say enough about. I've got like <laughs> so much to say about it, but let's show the final arc here. Here it is. Uh, it's 69 and 70. And you'll notice there's only two issues. So forgive me, but I'm about to start talking for a little while <laughs> because as I said, right at the beginning, I did. Yeah, I go did ahead. Note, um, I did note that I, there was never, I, I don't believe until issue number 70, I read the, the letters pages, uh, which is not something I do. I'm not a letters page reader. Um, there was no indication that the book was being canceled, at least up until 16, either 69 or 70. Um, but prior to that, those last two issues, uh, there was nothing in the letters page to indicate that the book was going away. No, I think you're right. I think there might be something in the letter page in 69 saying that the next issue is the last issue. That, I was, may well be. I mean, uh, I started reading this off the stands new around issue I don't know, 55. And uh, so I was buying these when they came out and um, there was no, I had no idea it was ending. As I mentioned at the beginning though, there's nothing I love more as a writer than when the structure is part of the story. And all of the arcs up till now have been four issues. What I love so much about this, and once I talk about this, then we can actually talk about the, the stuff with Wes and Diane because that's also great but it's set up in exactly the same way to be a four issue mystery and Wes has been more and more concerned with events in Europe and he got this letter as we mentioned earlier he got a letter from his brother basically saying I'm in Europe I'm in trouble I'm stuck here I need your help and Wes is like wasn't quite he doesn't have a good relationship with his brother but he feels compelled he's having more and more dreams from Morpheus about what's happening in Europe and so he basically in this arc he decides that he needs to go to Europe and part of it is that in the middle of this investigation it's a, again the case is set up to be your classic four issue arc there's this person who's dressed as a world war one soldier including the gas mask sort of like sandman and uh he's killing veterans and sandman's trying to try to solve the mystery and several of the other vigilantes from the early days of the dcu who've been introduced during the series get involved in the case as well our man shows up and the crimson avenger shows up and they all get in each other's way trying to stop the bad guy and basically, Sandman is sort of like, I don't think I need to be here anymore. Um, what's happening in Europe is too important. And now there's all these other people here that are going to be doing this vigilante stuff that I've been doing. And so my focus needs to be elsewhere. And so he decides to leave right in the middle of the arc. 
and he and Diane literally leave their own comic right in the middle of the story and we never find out what happens in the plot the plot because they're basically like oh this is now an hour man story it's not a sandman story we never find out what happens with the mystery it's not important we follow wes and diane as they literally fly out of their own comic and it just ends because it's so great because the comic is always about their relationship and we get to the part where at the end of the issue where they decide to get married which i'll talk about we can talk about in a minute and and then they fly away that's where the story should end because it's really about their relationship has come to the not the conclusion but the arc of their relationship is is done that they are where they needed they were getting to and so the little cases they've been on the whole time have never been the focus. So the fact that they just leave their own mystery right in the middle of it. And the last issue, it's not like it happens right at the end. There are only a few pages into issue 70 where he's like, yeah, I've got other things to do. And the rest of this, the issue is the two of them figuring out what they're going to do while somewhere else over here is a, a presumably crimson avengers dragging this guy down but we never it doesn't matter it doesn't matter i love it so much it was like the greatest ending to a series for me that i've ever read it's, it's just the best they uh they're uh, i think uh that whole last issue uh you're right that it i think I want to say that they just decide they're going to be done about issue number or about page number five. And, uh, you know, at that point, they just are, are wrapping things up. Um, Wes puts his secretary in charge of the company. Um, uh, he talks to Larry and explains what's happening. Um, we find out that Burke, uh, has decided uh, now knows that, uh, that Wes is Sandman and seems to be okay with it. Um, and they just, they go do their thing. Yeah, there's it it a lot of great things tied up here. I love the scene with Burke where Sandman basically warns him. He's basically like, I'm leaving the city and uh, these other vigilantes are coming. And they, he's like, I always have the best interest of the city in mind but some of these people like the crimson avenger for instance um, <laughs> may not you know and so burke you know burke gives him the gruff sort of like get out of here you a-hole but you see there at the end that burke is like he re he knows the sandman is is the good guy and he doesn't he trusts sandman or he doesn't trust these other superheroes coming along i love that scene uh, one thing that we haven't really talked about, but is of course really important in this issue, is that Wes doesn't believe in marriage. He doesn't believe in traditional yeah. marriage, and that's a sticking point in their relationship throughout the series because, you know, she wants to get married and he won't marry her. And then what happens in this story is basically he has his mother's ring, and he's like, "I don't believe that the institutions have the right to like." it's the institution that he doesn't approve of. It's not marriage itself. So he's basically like, if you'll take this ring, you know, 
I'll consider us married in the eyes of the universe. I just don't need or want a government or a church to have to, to have the power over our hearts. And she's like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. And so basically they just decide that they're married because there's a tension throughout the issue where he's going to go to Europe and leave her behind. And he doesn't want that. And she doesn't want it. But, um, there's particularly with her father just having the heart attack because he found out about the abortion. There's a feeling like she can't go with him unless they're married because it'll be, it'll be more of a scandal and, and stuff. And so they decide that they're married and she's going to go with them to Europe. And the, the series ends with them on the plane flying out of New York city. And one thing we haven't really talked about is how New York is such a huge character in the series, mainly in large part due to Guy Davis's amazing art showing the yeah. city. So having them fly out of New York, it's just, it's so perfect for the characters. It's perfect for the series. It's also perfect thematically on another level where he's recognizing the beginning of the DCU. The, the character himself is like, we're entering a new time. And part of that is because he's getting these dreams from Morpheus that are sort of warning him about the superhero stuff that's about to happen but he's sort of like uh the era of the series that we've been in the pulp era is over and so that's where the series has to end because we know from the rest of the dc universe that when he gets over to europe the justice society is about to happen and so it's like oh it's just the best the best series ending for me yeah. again for me of any series i've ever read and really if the series had to end it was a good point to end it on um i noted that uh wes uh, th this the the last issue takes place on new year's eve and the prior new year's eve was the costume ball um and that was a point where diane made her new year's resolution that she was going to stop um, fussing about uh, Wes's uh, actions as Sandman and she was just going to help him. Obviously that resolution didn't last very long because they had to get her to England. But I think, I think it was a, um, a, a, a thematically important that, that those two things happened uh, one year apart, so. Yeah, so so that's basically the, the end of the series. So uh, there's eventually, many, many years later, a new Salmon Mystery Theater miniseries. I read the first issue and then uh, didn't bother getting the rest of them. It doesn't, <laughs> I have not read it. So it I, takes I place in the modern day. It's a totally different character who sort of takes on the mantle of Sandman like during the Iraq war or something. Uh, I don't remember, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> There are a couple. Um, one thing to note, I don't have it with me. I haven't got it upstairs. Matt Wagner in the 2000s, so about a decade later, wrote a series for Vertigo called Madame Xanadu. There, and that has the character that, that is immortal and so it goes through different time periods. There's an arc that takes place in the 40s where she meets Sandman this is written by Wagner, and in the sequence, uh, I believe that sequence is drawn by Guy Davis. So it's a really cool, but it, it seems to take place after the war. So it's post-war. It's like 
it's like 46. So it's after this, it's a ways after this series, but it's, it's an interesting postscript for anyone who, who likes the series and might want to track down the, that, that arc also has um, all the covers in that arc. It's a five issue arc, but all the covers in it are done by, um, by Michael Kaluta. So it's just, it's a, it's great. I, uh, yeah, this is a book that I bought uh, off the newsstand from issue number one to issue number seven. I mean, the comic shop stand from issue number one to issue number 70. It was actually one of the last um, books I bought because those last issues, um, let me see, let me, let me segue over to the interweb here for a second. Um, that last issue was February 1999. That was very close to the time that I was graduating from law school and I would be moving and I moved to a place where the closest comic book shop uh, is at that time was probably 150 miles away. Uh, so I stopped buying new comics at that point. Um, and I went to trade paperbacks only. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to do that with uh, Sandman Mystery Theater because they never managed to finish uh, putting it all the out. Trades, so, yeah. Um, so it's it's got a special place in my heart for that that reason as well. It is one of the last books that I that I completely bought. Yeah, that is something important, I guess, for people listening to this that are intrigued. Although we just spoiled the whole series, totally <laughs> worth reading anyway. But is that they started reprinting them into trades, like most other comics sales on the trades apparently were just as bad as sales on the comic and they never finished reprinting them. So if you want to read it, this is one of these rare cases where you actually have to track down the original issues. And I know from some of our board members, I think it's MRP is trying to put together a complete run. The last 10 issues or so are really hard to find and he hasn't been able to find them. So it's, it's not that easy to put this story together right now, but it's, it's totally worth it. Um, it's, my favorite era in terms of reading comics, you know, I started reading in 84 and everyone, you know, has a certain amount of nostalgia for when they first started comics, but the time I had the most fun as a reader, like the most excitement every week to go to the store was actually the late nineties. And this was one of the big reasons why I would go to the store and I could, I could get, you know, Starman and Salmon mystery theater and, you know, Kurt Busiek's Avengers and all these other titles, Astro City and a bunch of great, great books coming out in, in the late 90s. Box Office Poison was one that I loved and Bone was coming out. And uh, this to me is just, it has everything I want in a comic. Um, it's got all the DC stuff for the superheroes, but it's got the pulp, it's got the art and it's got the amazing story. Uh, Diane Belmont, uh, great character, probably the best relationship in mainstream comics um, between her and Wes and uh, just so well-written the the thematic stuff in it uh, is just, is just great. I think the important thing is that it's, it's a real relationship. It's not the hokey. Um, uh, there are so many hokey love at first sight relationships in comics and, and in prose, we, we didn't didn't have that here. It took them some time to decide they wanted to to be together. They 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 had the 
on again, off again thing, but there were reasons for it um, instead of just, you know, for storyline purposes. Um, I, uh, like I said, I started reading comics a little earlier than, than you did I, in 1975. But frankly, I, I think that the very late 80s and the 90s is probably my favorite time for comics as well, um, which puts me as something of an anomaly for somebody my age. Um, but uh, there was so much good stuff, a lot of garbage coming out. And, and most mainstream uh, superhero comics at, at that time were, were, were pretty bad. But there was so much amazing stuff coming out of Vertigo. Um, Bone um, is a fabulous comic. Uh, Astro City, uh, just a lot of uh, super fun stuff. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, various genres that that were that were putting out fabulous comics at the time. Yeah. Uh, for every for every um, Spawn and Wildcats, there was something gold. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, Slam Bradley, for joining me. I hope you enjoy this discussion. I strongly recommend everybody that's into comics and superhero comics in particular, check out the series, Sam and Mystery Theater. It's really, really a great run. Um, you can always uh, join us for conversations about the series and other comics at classiccomics.org online. And course join us next time as i have a, a new guest that we talk about another classic comic series until then adventure awaits